Hello and welcome to this late edition of the Sunshine Boys podcast. It is the Notre Dame versus Miami special. In just a few hours as I record this on a Saturday afternoon, the Miami Hurricanes will host the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in a huge matchup for college football and the college football playoff implications. I'm Tim Williams filling in on studio work for Jim Williams. This week our guests will be Pete Byrne from WSBT-TV in South Bend, as well as Justin Tatavio of the Iron Man Football Blog. Hey everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sunshine Boys Podcast, and um, that means, of course, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, and Tim Williams with us, and um, I'm your host, Jim Williams from Washington, D.C., and today... We're talking about uh, something that we haven't talked about in quite a while, and that is a rivalry game between Notre Dame and Miami that meant something for both teams. And someone who's been very kind to um, join us today is Pete Byrne from WSBT uh, Television, Channel 22 in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Pete, welcome. Hello, Jim. uh, Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And um, give us a little feel for what um, – tell us a little bit about this year's uh, team that uh, Brian Kelly has and uh, a little bit of what we might be looking to see come Saturday. Well, not to uh, not to come out with too big of a statement, but I really think that, that this is the best team that Brian Kelly's had in his eight seasons in South Bend. And that includes the team in 2012 that, that went undefeated in the regular season and, and played against Alabama in the national championship game. Uh, we, we ultimately found out that that team was probably not championship caliber, although they did go undefeated during the regular season. But this is a really good football team. I mean, anyone that's watched them, you saw them lose a one-point game to Georgia very early in the year when this team was young, or maybe it was a little bit fragile in, in the memory coming off of a four-win season a year ago, which 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 really shouldn't have happened. They had too much talent on that team to, to only win four games last year. In fact, you guys probably saw them take on the Hurricanes last year. It was a good football team, just a team that, wasn't able to win football games. But nevertheless, since that early uh, September loss to Georgia, they have ripped through the schedule. They've they've won seven games in a row. Every one of those games but one has been by a minimum of 20 points. That includes wins over USC. That includes wins at Michigan State. It includes a really nice win over NC State, who uh, just took Clemson to the brink a couple days ago. Uh, last week against Wake Forest, was literally the closest game they've had all year. They won by 11, but they're up by 25 in the fourth quarter, put in the backups, at least on offense. So it's a really solid football team. Uh, defensively, they're much improved under new defensive coordinator Mike Elko. Uh, they're in the top 20 in scoring defense, top 20 in, in turnover margin. And and as you guys certainly know, they can run the football as well as anybody in the country. They've got two guys on the offensive line that are going to be taken very high in the NFL draft next year. And a Heisman candidate and running back Josh Adams, who is a who is a real terror for other teams to handle. So this is a really good football team. Joe Henderson. Well, uh, I have a question for our guest. Um, sure. Last year, uh, Brian Kelly openly admitted he didn't do a very good coaching job, mm-hmm. and that he would re- rededicate himself to that this season. And there was some talk that you know he might be on the hot seat. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. that's that's gone away now. But what 
What difference do you see in him this year as opposed to a, a year ago? Uh, yeah, he, I think he's taking a little bit more of a, of a CEO approach to the team rather than being an offensive head coach, which has kind of always been his MO um, through his entire career. And, and remember, this is a guy that started and, and has still to this point worked half of his career as a Division II football coach. We're used to having small staffs and you're used to kind of being involved in a lot of different things. And, you know, he, he made his name being an offensive play caller. And and in doing so, I think has not spent enough time focused on defense and special teams. I think he's always just left that to the appropriate coordinators. Well, he had a bad defensive coordinator last year and a bad special teams coordinator, um, and ultimately it, it cost this team. He, 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 he probably held on to his defensive coordinator. Not probably. Definitely held on to him a year too long. They never should have started last season with the coordinator they had. Um, and, and I think the – the proof is in the results you see right now. I mean, these are by and large the same kids who were playing a year ago, uh, and, and and they're a, a top 20 scoring defense and a top 20 turnover defense. Last year they weren't doing any of those things. So uh, what he's done differently is he's made a lot of staff turnover. He's got six new assistant coaches. That's that's half your that's more than half your staff, right? And a new strength coach too. He he got rid of his strength coach who had been with him a very long time, long before he came to Notre Dame, um, and replaced him with a guy that the players love, and how many players love their strength coach, right? I mean, usually that's the last thing these guys want to be doing is getting up and going to the weight room. But he has – I don't know the secrets. Obviously, this guy's really good at what he does. But whatever he's doing, he's so good at it that the guys were so confident into the way their bodies were, were changing and getting stronger and faster in the off season that they couldn't wait to play, and they couldn't wait to go back to the weight room. So you're starting to see that now towards the tail end of the season. This is a really strong football team, and they haven't worn out. They're actually getting stronger, they say, during the year. Usually teams try to maintain during the season. This guy, whatever he's doing, has them, has them somehow getting stronger. That's why they're so good at running the football. I think that's why they're so hard to run against. Uh, you know, they're just they're just physically tougher. And, and like I said, Kelly has turned over a lot of the reins to the team to his coordinator. So now he spends time in special teams, spends time in defense, he still spends a lot of time in offense, but he has a new offensive coordinator too. Anyone that's watched a lot of Notre Dame football over the last several years knows that Brian Kelly loves to throw the football. Well, this is the team that I think is third or fourth in the country in rushing offense this year. That's Brian Kelly's conscious decision, but he's not the one physically calling 40 running players a game. That's just not how he does it. So the new offensive coordinator, Chip Long, he deserves a lot of the credit for that too. He's got the discipline to say, hey, we've got these big linemen, we've got this big running back. We're going to run the football until you can stop us. Well, Pete, you know, the expectations around Notre Dame are always through the roof. In good years and in mm-hmm. bad, they are they're Notre Dame. They're, they're right. always going to have that. Coming off of a down season where, as, as we mentioned, it kind of started with Brian Kelly's future being a little uncertain at the time and he's done a great job about when did people start to see this team as a team that could be in the college football playoff picture um was it around the USC win or was it before that that's the precise moment right there I think you can actually you could probably pick out the the play in the third quarter when Josh Adams broke his big 50 plus yard run and that game ceased to be a game that people realized, oh, this team could be really good, not just, hey, they're they're going to have a winning season, they're going to go back to the bowl game, they've righted the ship. 
Now there, there 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 was a lot of doubt surrounding this team heading into the year, and rightfully so after after a four and eight season. Um, and and even though their loss was a good loss, it came early in the year, right? So you open up the year with a win over over Temple, which is a nice team, but it doesn't get anybody too excited, right? And then you you lose to Georgia in a low scoring football game in week two, and nobody knows in week two that Georgia is going to go on to perhaps be the best team in the country by the end of the season. So you're 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 right back to where you started the season. Here we go again. They can't win close games, but they win a nice game at Boston College. They go up to Michigan State at night and absolutely dominate a Michigan State team that, that traditionally has been very good. I mean, Mark Antonio always has really good teams, and, and they don't always win, but you rarely see them just manhandled. Uh, that, that's just not the, the kind of program he has. So that was kind of the first indication I had that, all right, I think these guys have turned the corner and they're going to be better. But then they had a couple of games against teams that weren't very impressive, Miami of Ohio and North Carolina, as you guys know, not 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 the best team in the country by any means. It, it wasn't until they, they took on USC and didn't just beat them, but beat them soundly. I think 49-14 to 14 was the final score. I mean, think about that. It's the number, number 11 team in the country at the time. I think they're pretty close to that now. They've got a guy, a quarterback, that might be the top quarterback taken in the draft. Uh, I think they started the year fourth or third in the country. Um, beating them is one thing, but beating them by 35 points, I mean, that really said something. I think at that point people realized that, oh, now when you look at the schedule and who they've beaten and who's left, maybe this could, could turn into a really good year if they can keep it together. Uh, to the Irish's credit, they've been able to keep it together. NC State, I thought, was – I think they might be a better football team than USC, so the Irish coming back and beating them the next week was really important for me to see. Obviously, this Saturday is the next test because – Pretty much all of their really tough games this year have been at home, with the exception of Michigan State. This will be the first time they're going on the road to take on what I think is a really good football team, and we'll see how that changes things. I recall. I got a question. I got a question, James, for our, for our guest. Um, if Miami, as expected, <clears throat> loads up the box and mm-hmm. uh, tries to take away tries to take away what the Irish do best. Yeah. Um, is there, is there enough offensive balance, if necessary, uh, to win this game through the air for, for Notre Dame? Well, I think that's – that's I don't, I don't want to dodge your question, but that's that's what we're all all going to find out and what we're curious to see because that, that certainly is the book against them, right, is, is take away Josh Adams, and that's how you neutralize their offense. Uh, I will just say this. There isn't a team in the country yet that's been able to take him away except for Georgia. Um and here's here's what Miami has to be careful about, and I'm sure they're going to be. You've seen Adams' the stats is that he's got all these runs of more than 50 yards. Well, how do, those don't come because he's the fastest guy in the field. Those come because they stick nine guys in the box. He gets a really good block from one of his guys up front, and a five-yard run turns into a 50-yard run because after five yards, there's nobody left. So, yeah, it's it's possible they could they could load the box and take that away, but it only takes one really good block or one good cut or one mistake to turn a to turn a a run that was supposed to set you up in second and five into a half field or a full field touchdown. I mean they think they've done that seven times this year, which is just an astounding number. Um but but I think what you're getting at is, you know, can they throw the ball enough? That's the question that everybody wants to see. I, I will say that I think Brandon Wimbush is probably coming off of his best game he just threw for for a, a shade under 300 yards last week, and he didn't play in the fourth quarter. 
Um, Notre Dame's got two young receivers that, are, that have come along in the last couple of weeks, and Chase Claypool and Kevin Stefferson. Uh, Stefferson pretty much skipped the first half of the season for disciplinary reasons, but he's a real he's a real speedster, number 29. Um, he's a guy that can kind of change the game. You know, but that, but that's that's certainly kind of the the last I think real legitimate question mark regarding this team, and you know whether or not we consider them a national championship contender, right? Because whether whether you're talking about this Saturday night or whether you're talking about a couple weeks from now at Stanford or whether you're talking about potentially a playoff game against a team like Alabama, um, probably can't be one-dimensional and win that football game, even though this team has been largely one-dimensional this year. Um, but, but they've passed the ball very efficiently. Their passing numbers aren't gaudy, uh, but, but Wimbush's efficiency has been very good. And the other thing you got to think about is that he's an incredibly elusive quarterback. There have been times where he's dropped back to pass, he's he's taken one or two looks, not like what he's seen, and he just takes off for 10, 15 yards, and there aren't too many guys in the field that can catch him. So that's kind of a, you know, did you guys, did Miami play Louisville last year? I don't recall. You know, he, he's, he's got some similarities as a quarterback at Louisville in terms of his athleticism and his, his dynamic kind of running ability. So, you know, I mean, it, he, he creates massive problems that way. Hey, one more quick one. Uh, that The two offensive linemen you alluded to uh, for uh, yeah. Notre Dame, uh, are they on a class with uh, with a Zach Martin? Um, Potentially, yeah. I think they really are. Um, probably Quentin Nelson more than Mike McGlinchey. Uh, Nelson's a year younger. He's the guard. I think he's I think he's considered the best lineman in the country at any position. And, man, it's hard to argue with that. He's so big and strong. And if if you just look at, at what he's done this year, I mean, he just never makes a mistake every single time. He just does whatever he wants to do on every single play. Um, McGlinchey's maybe a, a notch below that, but he's, he's still a first-round pick. He's an excellent left tackle, and he's having a great fifth year. He was Notre Dame's right tackle when he started, playing opposite of Lonnie Stanley, who's now at the, with the Baltimore Ravens. And then when Stanley graduated, they moved him from the right to the left. He struggled last year, and I think it was just, you know, the timing and the difference in steps being from the right side to the left side. But he's really good, too. I would say that maybe he's not quite Zach Martin good, but he's still going to be a starter next year in the NFL. Quentin Nelson could be Zach Martin good, at least if he goes to the right football team, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you go to the Cleveland Browns, you're not going to get a gold jacket no matter how good you are, right? <laughs> Let me ask you the question that um, I guess everyone's at. I mean, there's there really hasn't been a rivalry since the 80s. Is mm-hmm. there a possibility that uh, perhaps this Saturday's game could rekindle that rivalry? Because, I mean, if you look at it, Mark Rick, uh, Mark was there in 79 yeah, through 82. Yeah, so Mark Mark does know a little bit about the rivalry. And uh and I think um you know I, I know that both Notre Dame and Miami would love to see this thing gin itself back up. And ironically, uh in a poll done this week by SB Nation uh about the rivals, uh it was Michigan listed number one as the number one rival of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. The number two rival was a tie between USC and Miami. How about that? And that was, you know, that was weird to me. But um, yeah. Anyway, um, 
it's not really it just, a rivalry unless you play each other on a, re- on a regular basis. Right. That just speaks to the power of those games in the late 80s where they were both in the top 10 every time and, and every game just about was competitive and that there was like, there's kind of like a real hatred for each other in that game. I mean, those were, those were, those were great, great games. I don't think it's ever going to get to that point again, right? Because they don't play each other every year. I mean, back then Notre Dame was an independent, so they they intentionally scheduled Miami every year for that for that stretch of years. That's not going to happen now. Now that there's this ACC agreement with Notre Dame in the conference, you're going to see them somewhat regularly. Uh, obviously, they they played last year. I, I don't know when Miami comes back on Notre Dame's schedule again. On average, it's like once every three years that these teams are scheduled to play each other. It doesn't always work out once every three years. I think once every four or five years, they're guaranteed to play. Uh, I would say I don't think they're probably – I don't think the rivalry is going to get back to where it was just because I don't think – I just don't think that can happen when you don't play each other every single year. But I do think because, like what you just said, that that people still consider it to be one of Notre Dame's biggest rivals based on the strength of those games in the 80s, I think because of that memory, and and Notre Dame fans are all about nostalgia and history, I think any time that Miami and Notre Dame play each other in the future and both teams are in the top 20, it's going to be a really big and exciting game just because it's automatically going to take all of our memories back to those games. And it's going to make us think that, you know, maybe maybe we could get another one of those situations here tonight. And I certainly think we're in line for a great football game on Saturday night. I wouldn't expect there to be fighting in the tunnel before it starts, though, you know? <laughs> I think the game's been shifted kind of left. Not with a Nike Mark Rick team. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. And then, we're, to be honest, let's be let's be let's be candid here. Jimmy and Lou didn't like each other. I mean, that's not an at all. Not at all. Fact. And that goes back <laughs> years. So um, I, I do remember. You know, I remember Joe. You talked about the fifth boys. I think it was fifty fifty nine seven or something like that. Was the Faust game? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I remember doing. Uh, I used to do the games for WPLG Channel Ten in Miami, and I remember Jimmy um, when Schnellenberger was there. Schnellenberger in his office had a on the corkboard had a you a, a South. Uh, I'm sorry, a Florida State um, history. All the games they had played. Jimmy put it put the history when that when Notre Dame was coming in. Jimmy put the history of Notre Dame up and put. Uh, a circle around a 44 to nothing game that took place. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I can, I can guarantee you uh, as much as uh, I've, I've had a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful relationship with a lot of people in Notre Dame. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite people of all time, father Hesburgh, who, you know, guided the, the university for many, many years there. Jimmy would have beat, Father Hesburgh, fifty-five to nothing. If he could, he would have beat the Pope, fifty-five to nothing. If he would, <laughs> it really didn't matter what her. It was, you know, who it was on the other side. Jimmy Johnson loved to win and win big. So, uh, I know a lot of people got on Jimmy about that, but you know, um, it was not something that Jimmy, uh, frankly, cared about. Yeah, well, didn't he feel that? Um, didn't he feel that Holtz uh, took his job uh, at Arkansas? He did. Uh, oh way, yeah, way back yeah. when. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, there was some animosity there that went that was that was deep seated in that I think. Yeah. But that, that's partly what made that great was the characters in that game, yeah. you know. 
Well, and, and, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see, and Joe, you can chime in on this because you were there. Um, you know, I was there, you were there. I mean, we were, we, th- th- those Miami teams were renegades. I mean, they were like the Oakland Raiders era of the uh, early 60s. I mean, you're looking at teams with Jack Tatum on there. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, Joe, chime in on this if you agree on that. It, well, uh, yes, the, that's how you got the whole Catholics versus convicts thing, uh, <laughs> which which was just a fabulous uh, special on ESPN about that. Right. Uh, but mm-hmm. the, the, By the uh, way, it's playing like every four minutes during the week. If you haven't seen it, believe me, you will. Uh, well, I think it's on a continuous loop. With all the talk about Miami being considered such a high, high up on the list of rivals for Notre Dame, and of course they have many, I would say that documentary probably helped put them there because people have watched it it's a fascinating documentary it takes you back to a to a time or for students on campus it introduces them to a time that they might not have known about and i think that now that miami's good i think everyone immediately remembers having watched that and it's circled to or circled saturday night on their schedules well yeah. so you were saying going, go ahead go ahead yeah, Joe. I was gonna say, going going back to that that final game the, for Jerry Faust, he had already uh, announced that this was going to be his final game. It was right. in the Orange Bowl. Miami was rolling. Notre Dame was came in. I think they were five and five. Um, mm-hmm. Really, nothing to play for. Lou Holtz was sitting in the press box that day watching that game, and the the Hurricanes just never let up. They were running trick plays. They were, they were just mauling Notre Dame. And the final was, I think it was 58 to seven. And uh, if you remember, I, I was at the game, but I wasn't watching the TV, but Eric Parsegian was on, uh, on the telecast. Right. Calling on <laughs> Jimmy Johnson to lighten up. Come on, stop humiliating <laughs> these guys. And then, you know, when that got out after the game, Miami's response was, look at all the times Notre Dame blew out people by outrageous scores. So, you know, basically shut up. And I think that that added, uh, I don't know, a sequoia-sized log to a fire that uh, was already pretty hot at that point. Well, like I said, we had that 44 nothing score that Jimmy had circled, <laughs> which was an era Parsigian, um you know, win on yes. the way to a national championship for era. So uh, it's, it's funny. You could argue that that 85 game and, and, and the memories that it left in some of the players that were still around a few late years later, uh-huh. that might've been, that might've been why 87 and 88 turned out to be so good. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think that there were enough memories there. I, I don't, I don't know if, if in 1988 Notre Dame beats Miami, if they weren't, chopping it the bit so hard for so long to get to that game, you know? Mm-hmm. I That's think a good Miami point. Is pro- I think Miami was probably still the more talented team at that point, even though Notre Dame won the game and went on to win mm-hmm. the national champion. Right. Or did Miami win- Was Miami the national champs in 87 and 89? Am I correct on that? Am I, I was about to say, if, yeah, 87, Definitely 87. Were, and 89 87. was the first, uh, the first title for your, uh, Jimmy had gone to the, Jimmy left in 89 and went to, um, went to Dallas and uh, Dennis Erickson came in in 89 and that was uh they won they actually won the game at Miami 
Yeah, and, and they the, were one versus two, weren't they? They were one versus two. One versus two, yeah. Yep, and uh, and that was Dennis's first year, and Dennis won the national championship in the first yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. So, but so, basically so Jimmy's two, team. Yeah, these two teams won three consecutive national titles, and Notre Dame probably should have won it in 90 if not for, for, for a, a let-up right after taking on Miami because they were really good that year. But I guess that's the, my point is that I think that early, that blowout in the, in the mid-'80s at the end of the Faust era, you know, I think that's what that's what made Notre Dame I think really want to beat Miami, you know. Not everybody mm-hmm. wants to win, but the kind of the kind of memory that fuels guys through the off season in their training and gives them that little bit of extra to make maybe make them play a little bit above their potential on an afternoon when it matters most. You know, that's that's the one thing we haven't really talked about here is, you know, we remember how good those teams were, but but it's it's worth saying again how good those two programs were in the late 80s when they met every single year. I mean, you, you you honestly felt when you walked into the stadium that the winner of this game has the inside track at the national title. You absolutely felt that, at least 88-89. And in 87, in Miami's case, too. And I think that's fair to say again this Saturday. I don't, I don't think that either one of these teams can call themselves the best team in the country right now. But I do think that the winner of this Saturday's game absolutely controls their own destiny as it as it comes to playing their way into the college football playoff. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think the other part of this equation, which is ironic, and I'd like to get you guys, all of you guys' opinion on it, is that um, one of the uh, victims of his own success was Lou Holtz. I mean, he got fired from Notre Dame in large part because, quote-unquote, he wasn't recruiting um, the type of scholar athletes that um, – the quote unquote Notre Dame wanted. Well, that's lovely, but you know, you, you either have a good football team, you have scholar athletes. Um, in Holtz's, um, you know, Holtz would say later. Um, so your thoughts, I mean, was Lou Holtz a victim during that whole situation? You know, was he blamed, uh, unfairly or fairly for, for the success of Notre Dame? And, and, you know, was he let go in large part because, you know, they felt that um, maybe, maybe because of those games between Miami and Notre Dame, that um, that they were losing focus of what they wanted to be. Yeah, that's that's not really a question that I think you can answer in in this podcast. You could do a three part ESPN series on, <laughs> on on the final few final few months of Lou Holtz's tenure. Yeah, there are a lot of prevailing theories on this. I, I think it's important to note, note that, that the athletic director that hired him was not the same athletic director under which he quote unquote resigned. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. We right. We we do know that we do know that that he wasn't done coaching because he because he went to South Carolina shortly after that. I, I think his plan right. had always been to finish at Notre Dame, and I think that was everybody else's plan as as well. It's unfortunate that it didn't that it didn't come to that, and I think in Notre Dame's case. For as much as Lou was beloved when he was here, it also turned into a case of you don't know what it's got, what you've got till it's gone, right? Because they were mm-hmm. so good every year under him, and within months of him leaving, the program had taken major steps backwards. Um, you know, there's there's definitely something to the fact that it's that that if if you're coaching at Notre Dame and it's not just football, it's basketball, it's hockey, it's, it's name whatever sport you want. You can't get any kid in you want just because he's really good at his or her sport, right? It, 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 there, there are mm-hmm. other challenges as it relates to the academics. Uh, Brian Kelly, I think very cleverly, kind of uses the phrase frequently, you're shopping down a different aisle when you're at Notre Dame 
but but I don't think you can say that you that you can't do it. Um, I think he's I think he's proven that you can do it. I think Holt's proved that you can do it. But I think it's a little bit harder. I mean, I think it's why probably you know Brian Kelly's about to coach his 100th game at Notre Dame this Saturday. That's a little interesting footnote that'll probably get overlooked. But but that's a that's a notable number. 100 games at Notre Dame. There are only five coaches once that game kicks off that have coached 100 games at Notre Dame. Rockney, Leahy, Parsegian, Holtz, and then Brian Kelly. Think about that. And those first four guys have won all but one or two of their national championships, with Dan Devine being the other, and he didn't even last that long. Mm-hmm. Guys don't coach at Notre Dame for very long. It's, it's, it's a difficult job, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult. There might be five or six difference makers in every recruiting class where a coach is saying, if we can get these guys, we're going to be the best team in the country, and they just can't get those guys. And they know they can't get those guys. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's why Holtz left, but I do think that that reality wears a coach down over time, right? Mm-hmm. He's 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 got a he's got a he's got to hit a higher bar in the recruiting and academic standard than every one of his uh, than every one of his peers, and it's hard enough to win a college football game when it's my eleven against your eleven. When you throw in a factor like that, it's it's just an additional challenge, um, and it's also one of the things that makes Notre Dame a great place. You know, to be a student and to be a student athlete and to be an alum too, right? I mean, there's there's a tremendous amount of pride they take in that, and I think they should too, right? This is not professional football. I mean, in, in theory, every one of these kids is there to to get an education and set themselves up for the rest of their lives. That that's not always the reality, unfortunately. But you know, in, in a utopia, that's that's how it would be. Uh, well, go ahead, real quick, Tim. I I think that you can flip that on its head to a degree, though, as well. And I think Brian Kelly's doing a decent job of that. And other Notre Dame coaches have done a decent job of that. That if you're looking at the kind of players that can make a difference, let's face it, those guys are players who we expect to go to the NFL at some point. And because of Notre Dame's high standards and because of what they expect of their student-athletes, a guy who's NFL bound might be a little more prepared for an NFL career coming out of a Notre Dame than they might be coming out of some of these other schools that don't hold that standard. Uh, yeah, I think to a degree that's fair, but 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 talent is still talent, right? I mean, and 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 also I guess the competition is seen day to day. I mean, I, I, Alabama's probably put more guys in the NFL in the last decade than anyone, and, and, and I'm guessing at this, but I but I but I would but I would wager some money that that's probably correct. And that's just based on the fact that, that they're getting talent and that talent's competing against itself every single day in practice. And then the SEC has been the class of college football for the better part of the last decade. I mean, I, I, I agree with what they're saying. And I think Notre Dame does prepare guys really well for the national football league. And I think they also prepare them just, just for life as well. But, but when you're recruiting a 17 or an 18 year old kid, whose only goal is to get to the NFL, you know, I don't think all the other all the other great things that that a good college education and a good four years teaches you necessarily factors into a lot of those kids' thought process. The smart ones it does. And Notre Dame those are the kids that Notre Dame tries to target and get in, along with the school like say Stanford or Northwestern and some of the other better football programs that also have good academics. But but it doesn't change the fact that there are some kids that are insanely talented that they'd love to put a football in their hands, but they just can't get them into the school. Guys, uh, Ira, Joe, any final questions? We have actually kept Pete much longer than uh, oh, he and I agreed. 
agreed to. Uh, hey, um, to I got. Well, I, I got a quick one for Pete, uh, Jim. Go ahead, um, yeah. But, uh, Pete, Pete, what what do you what do you see for Kelly's future um, three or four years down the line? Um, do the pros intrigue him? Uh, is he happy in uh, South Bend, or uh, what if he gets a strong offer from an NFL team? I don't see him leaving for the NFL. He and, and I've talked about this a lot over the years. He he hasn't really flirted with the NFL since since 2012 when he had a had a chance to go to the Philadelphia Eagles. He he, he interviewed for there. I think he's a college football coach. I think the way he controls his his program, you know, and the way you can you can kind of be involved in every every aspect of your players' lives, from their meetings to their training to what they eat to when they sleep, you know, you can't do that in the National Football League. Those are grown men with lives and families, and they're employees. And I think he's I just think he is a better college football coach than he would be a pro football coach. And I think he's come to that realization. So I think that he realizes that his best chance at at being remembered long-term as, as a great football coach is by doing it in college. And, and it probably has to be by doing it at Notre Dame. I think he's too late in his career to, to leave Notre Dame and do it somewhere else in college. So I, I think he's here. I think he's at Notre Dame for as long as he can win at an acceptable level. And then when you say, what's an acceptable level? Well, you talk to alumni, it's, it's different for everybody, you know? <laughs> Some people think they need to be winning 12 games a year. Other people are content with with going eight and four and graduating. But I I think as long as he's putting a good football team on the field, he's he's safe here for a while. I I just don't see him testing the NFL waters again. I just, I just don't think that that's where his head's at. Joe Henderson, any final thoughts or comments? Well, for Pete? Um, yeah, <clears throat> I've got one uh, one quick question for Pete. Mm-hmm. Make the call. Who wins? Oh, well, obviously, I'm going to go with Notre Dame. I cover the team. I, I am an alum. I suppose I should I should say that in in, in uh, interest of full disclosure. I just think they're a better football team based on the results. I mean, Notre Dame's coming off their closest game of the last two months, and it was an 11-point win in a game that they were up by 25. I have not watched a lot of Miami. I did watch them last week, and they looked very impressive against Virginia Tech. But I also saw him struggle against North Carolina, and I struggled. Saw him struggle a couple weeks before that against Syracuse, two teams that I don't think are great football teams. I think it's going to be a really good football team, or excuse me, I think it's going to be a really good football game. But I just think Notre Dame is a better team right now, so I got to go with them. Real quick, final story for you guys on Lou Holtz. When Lou was being recruited by Father Hesburgh to take the job at Notre Dame. Uh, he took him all around the campus. Obviously, he took him to um, to the football stadium. He took him to the alumni, uh, the goodness, what, uh, the uh, convocation center, which is a beautiful facility, and uh, took him all around. And finally, he finished the um, the tour by taking him up to the uh, graveyard, and he told Lou uh, that. Lou is going to get four plots in this beautiful graveyard. And he said, look, you can see the entire campus, everything on the campus, right from here. And Lou turns to Father Hesburgh and says, Father, there's only one problem. He goes, what's that? He goes, you got to be sitting up to do it. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, Lou, Lou at times was a curmudgeon, but he also had a great sense of humor. And... Um, I think we all appreciate the fact that it'd be fun to get back and have a good rivalry between Miami and uh, 
and Notre Dame and even FSU and Notre Dame. So maybe that'll happen. We don't know, but without question, Pete, uh, we appreciate you coming in and talking about Notre Dame football because Saturday night, that will be the biggest game in the state of Florida this year so far. Uh, and uh, it just so happens it's Notre Dame and Miami. And if, uh, if we can get an instant classic out of it, that'd be cool as well. So hopefully, awesome. hopefully it'll be a good game and, May the best team win, and I think that with Coach, uh, uh, you know, with Coach Kelly in uh, in Notre Dame and Coach Rick in Miami, uh, both these programs are going to flourish and, and continue to do well. So, Pete, thanks for joining us, and uh, certainly you're welcome to drop by anytime. Talk both uh, pro football and college football with us, and uh, we'll return on the Sunshine Boys podcast after this uh, word. Amazon Music Unlimited. The way we keep music around has changed drastically in the past 20 years. There used to be CDs that would take up entire shelves in every living room. Then music went digital and we started paying by the song where we could load up our hard drives. Now you can stream it for just a little fee every month and that's where Amazon comes in once again. For $9.99 a month, $7.99 if you're a Prime member, you get access to Amazon's entire library of digital music, which includes just about anything you can think of. Get a free 30-day trial by following the link on our Blog Talk radio page. Amazon Music Unlimited. All the songs you want without taking up any shelf space or any hard drive space. Welcome back to the Sunshine Boys podcast. I'm Tim Williams, joined here by Justin Datavia of the Ironman football blog and a contributor to both Fansided and SB Nation. You can read his contribution to a Miami Hurricanes Q&A on One Foot Down, and we will have the link for you in the description for this podcast. Justin, thank you for coming on the show. I thank you for having me. It's a good opportunity. It's a big, big week for the Miami Hurricanes. As it, for one, they're back in the top 10. They're back looking at this new college football playoff. This is really their first honest shot to make the college football playoff. And not only that, but all the old ghosts are coming back because they're playing Notre Dame in Hard Rock Stadium on, on Saturday night. Yeah, I mean, if it was still in the Orange Bowl, it would be even more, I guess, of a um, you know show and uh, extravaganza, but it's up in Hard Rock. Hard Rock's been really upgraded um, with the covered seating and bringing the stands um, and the fans closer to the actual game to make it look and feel a little bit more like the Orange Bowl. So that's a real benefit that they've done there. Um, while the turf is not exactly 100%, as everybody's kind of made fun of over the last few weeks, on the actual playing surface. Uh, you know, the actual stadium experience for fans. And, and I think the noise level is going to be um, what people expected from the Orangeville. Now, we talked earlier on the program to a Notre Dame expert who went about, uh, who tried to rank all of their, their school's various rivals. And much like Notre Dame, Miami has multiple schools that they have a long, long history with. Where does Notre Dame rank on the list of Miami's rivals? I mean, it's definitely in the top, you know, three. Um, it just depends on, you know, who you ask. I think in, in the area that they're from, I would say, 
you know, it's harder with Florida and Notre Dame because of not playing annually. Um, you know, when the Florida series was dropped around, I think it was after 87, Notre Dame was after 1990, it loses a little bit of that consistency. Um, so Florida State uh, is always the hated but respected rival and number one, I think, on the list, um, you know, because it's the annual rivalry that's now they're both in the ACC. It's even easier with Notre Dame doing this partial ACC thing. You know, it helps to get it there. But I think really if you were to look at number one, you know, Miami always has to beat Florida State. If you were to look after that, um, I think anytime Florida or Notre Dame are on the schedule, those are must-win games. I would say those are more hated uh, rather than respected of uh, rivals. And then Virginia Tech is that, like, little, you know, brother that's always gets a sucker punch in every once in a while, but you should beat them. But it's always a closer game than it should be. Um, so I, I'd say Notre Dame, if it was still a consistent, um, you know, game would, would probably be number two or three. Uh, they're number three anyway. Well, a whole lot has changed, at least in the last couple of years, because of ESPN and because the 30 for 30 about the Catholics and the convicts. And certainly 30 for 30 has taken a lot of good looks at Miami football's history. But in particular, that one has come up a lot because the two teams are prominent and playing on Saturday. So I think to a degree, maybe the reminder that this rivalry existed has gotten people fired up to see it come back in some form and of course as you said they don't play every year which is there are quite a few college football rivalries that don't get played every year that you start to think maybe they should yeah i mean the issue i think is um wanting the extra home games and not neutral site not having to do a home and home with somebody and you know it all comes down to money um you know, and then getting the game for Notre Dame's side onto NBC with their more specified coverage, or is it going to be this ABC 8 p.m. game, um, you know, with college game day involved and, and the theatrics that kind of come with that? So I, I think it's a money grab. Um, while Miami and Notre Dame would be huge money no matter where it's played, uh, I think really it's been about, well, I want to secure my 12th game um, consistently as a home game and not a possibility of an away or a neutral site. Uh, now with the ACC tie-in, I don't understand why Notre Dame don't play every year. But you know, I'm not behind the scenes there in a money conversation and you know logistics, and it, it really just doesn't make any sense. Back to the or moving to the on the field action, Miami is coming off of a big week. They just beat Virginia Tech. Before that, they had been undefeated, but not necessarily well well thought of in the college football playoff rankings but with these two games in a row against tough ranked opponents they they've they have a chance to move way up those rankings and they started by a convincing win against Virginia Tech yeah I mean if Miami beats Virginia Tech and Notre Dame back to back um, you know I think you have to be in a conversation especially when the next few games are um, I want to say UVA, Pitt, you know, to kind of close out the season there off the top of my head. Um, I, I think you're looking at, unless there's a slip-up, Miami kind of pulling a, an Ohio State from uh, 2002 and, yeah, edging by some opponents, but also, you know, beating everyone in your schedule is beating everyone in your schedule. And then in the ACC championship, you, you'd suspect Clemson. Uh, if you can knock off Virginia Tech, Florida State, Notre Dame, and Clemson in the same year, 
I mean, you're in the top four. I, I don't care what year it is or what Florida State situation is. Um, that was surrounded by, you know, <laughs> hurricane delays and living in Orlando instead of Miami and everything that came with that, people without power and food and, you know, the, the displacement and, you know, losing a game, and every, you know, not losing a game, but losing the, the scheduled game off your, off your schedule. And I, I think if you look at all that, it doesn't matter who uh, is the quarterback at Florida State or whatever the situation is, um, you know, that, that's a lot to overcome. So you're, you're looking at a, at a, a team that if they do win out, um, I mean, they have to be in the top four. I don't think there's much question about that. Now, Miami has, by yardage, the 24th-ranked defense in the country. They've been very good on the defensive side of the ball. What's been propelling their success on defense? You know, uh, the the scheme has got its occasional flaws, but um, when you really look at it, uh, Manny Diaz really focuses on shutting down something. So uh, Syracuse, for instance, was able to, to pull off a few of the power read um, inverted beer options. Um, you're going to see at times maybe somebody uh, hit a few passes to a tight end or something, you know, something that's not in their forte of their game. You know, they wanted Eric Dungey to throw. He threw four picks, and they had to come back with a new plan. Syracuse did. So Miami's going to look to shut down whatever it is you do best. So for Notre Dame, it's going to shut down Josh Adams if he's healthy and, and Wimbush running the ball. And they're going to let a few big throws get by them. I hope that they, you know, Michael Jackson and Jaquan Johnson and these guys can get back and make a play. Once you're stuck to where somebody like Wimbush is having to throw or Eric Dungy's having to run, um, now you're in a situation where you're just feeding into the turnover deal. And Miami will start to bring a little bit of pressure. Uh, you know, you get flustered. You're tired of getting pounded because you've been running the ball. They've hit you for two yards instead of this five or six you're used to. And next thing you know, you're throwing interceptions. and you know, fumbling the ball and doing the things Miami obviously does best, you know, the, the turnover chain deal coming out, and that's exciting. You know, Mark Rick said, you know, if the team was, was four and five or whatever, nobody would care about the turnover chain. It's true. You, know, you have to be undefeated for people to care about something like that for it to matter. They, you know, if you did it with Tennessee's record with the turnover dumpster or whatever stupid thing they have, um, you're embarrassing. So it's got to be on a success-driven team. You've got to be building to a program and not just a team. Um, you know, where your core ethics and values and the things that you try to instill are there. And that's what Mark Rick does best, you know, better than almost anybody out in the country. Offensively, Miami has a very balanced attack. They, in college football, we see a lot of offenses that get in the kind of one-dimensional territory. And I could even include Notre Dame in that group. But Miami gives you a lot of varied looks and it keeps defenses guessing. Yeah, I think in college football with the limited practice time, um, having the kids have to go off and, and be a student athlete, um, you know, regardless of what, what is not of out there, if you want to keep your uh, graduation rates up and, and not wind up losing scholarships or bowls, you know, you're focusing on students. And, you know, Mark Richt always does. He's, he's a whole person guy. He's focused on a whole child. Um, when you want to do that, you're limiting your time. So a lot of people will go to, okay, we're going to really recruit and focus on a passing game or a running game and get really good at one thing, hang your hat on something. I think Miami and Mark Rick's always done this. You know, you, you've got the local talent to where recruiting is just a matter of, do they fit your, your value system? Are they going to work hard? Um, you know, there, there's a litmus test of athleticism, but from there, can the guy work hard enough to, uh, to, to wind up in a situation you need him in? So 
I think that's the, the mindset of keeping a balance. You're in a recruiting area. You can uh, balance out the talent a little bit better than, say, a uh, Syracuse that's got to recruit for one particular thing. And, of course, you mentioned it earlier, but stopping the Notre Dame run attack is going to be paramount for the Miami Hurricanes on Saturday night. Yeah, you have to. I mean, Josh Adams and uh, Brandon Wimbush are too good not to focus on a running. Now, you also mentioned graduation rates and how much Mark Richt pays attention to to his students and makes sure that they have a well-rounded team both on the field and off the field. Without going too much into Miami's mixed history with that, how much has this been a refreshing change over the last couple of coaches that Miami has now, they're starting to shed an old image that may have helped them win national championships, but also ended up hurting them in a lot of ways. And I, uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. That image hasn't really been there for a long time since Dennis Erickson left. It was a cleanup job from Butch Davis, and then from there, it progressed. I mean, uh, there's been situations, but every program has them. Uh, you know, Lou Holtz can't talk his way through saying he wants to fight Jimmy Johnson in the parking lot and acting like every program he's been involved with hasn't had some kind of sanction. So I think that that's one of those 50-50 things where it's a little bit more about the demographic of the school and the area that's in and the Bahamian heritage of, of Miami and then, you know, later the Cuban heritage. Uh, people not understanding the culture um, and, and the type of student that goes there. I mean, you look at the GPA of the requirements to get into a university like that, it's high. Um, it, you know, test scores are high. Um, I think a lot of times it's going to be demographic in the look. Um, you know, players in some of the Jamaican and Bahamian heritage are going to have longer hair. Um, they're going to have dreads. Uh, the idea of, you know, African-American youth and tattoos is part of culture. Um, you can look in – uh, many places and, and you know, excessive about tattoos or something that's going to be culture. So I think it's more of a um, scaring, uh, scaring white America. And I think that people in, in most parts of that don't like to see young African-American men come up powerful, strong, and successful uh, because, you know, what do you do if you, know, you lose white privilege and what do you have? So I think some of that is that. I think it's a perception. It's not really been reality for a long time. Randy Shannon didn't run a ship like that. Um, Al Golden focused on recruiting quality guys as much as he could. And Mark Rick, it's just been more of a thing um, out in the open because it's been so many years of being head coach. He's not a new head coach. I, I think you have a very good point about perception kind of outweighing reality when it comes to Miami and when it comes to college football programs in general. Because without naming names, back when Miami was considered a a bad boy sort of program, the programs we looked to at the time as the shining examples of how to do things ethically and right. Well, we've learned some things about those programs in the past 20 years that have made Miami look a little less um, the way that people wanted us to perceive Miami for years. So I think also, in addition to Miami, definitely having cleaned things up quite a bit, you also have maybe the maybe the image we've been sold of these good programs isn't necessarily genuine either. No, I mean, Barry Switzer has a charming accent, but University of Oklahoma was known for a lot of bad things while he was there. So uh, the charming accents aside, I think uh, people have to look in the mirror and realize that, yeah, you, you are using a uh, 
type of culture down in South Florida against people where, you know, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're looking at it and perceiving something, you're projecting onto it what you want to feel as opposed to what the truth is. Miami's offensive line has been up and down a little bit at times this season, and they're going to be faced with a challenge in Notre Dame. It, how can the offense adjust to maybe not getting the protection they always draw up in practice? You've got to use tight ends and running backs in the pass blocking scheme. I mean, you can't just go at Notre Dame with five offensive linemen and expect to stop them, and that's just not going to happen. Very good job of coaching on both sides. We've talked a bit about Mark Mark Richt and, of course, Brian Kelly, who started this season on kind of a hot seat, has really redeemed himself quite a bit as well. So, as I said earlier, these are two programs with a history. These are two programs that have won championships in the past and, and for a long time have been expected to compete for championships in good years and in bad it's a real remarkable turnaround in Miami is how they've gotten their team back in the top 10 as it is with Notre Dame but of course at Notre Dame it's pretty heavily publicized so I think most of the listeners have been through it and heard all the things they need to hear about the challenges facing Notre Dame's program but Miami had plenty of challenges of their own and now they're back in the top 10 in the ACC which is you know, it's, it's a building conference. It's had some national champions in Clemson and Florida State. But in recent years, it hasn't been perceived as one of the big conferences. So kudos to Miami for really getting back in the national picture in a big way. Yeah, it definitely started with Jimbo Fisher taking over Florida State and winning a championship and having a quarterback win the Heisman from there. I think it allowed guys like Dabo Sweeney to recruit better. It allowed Miami to bring in a Mark Rick, Virginia Tech to bring in a Coach Fuente. And then from there, you know, the quality of coaches just increases. The kids wanting to come to AC schools increases. The television coverage is there. So when you're at your home in Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, Alabama, you know, if you're in Birmingham, you're not just getting Alabama coverage. You're able to get UNC when they're hot, uh, Virginia Tech when they're hot, now Miami. Um, you know, you're able to get these other games on ESPN and not on, you know, ESPN 9 or something where you have to have the Internet access a lot of people don't have at home. One of the focuses for Miami's team is wide receiver Amon Richards, who has – he had a great freshman season last year, and he's picking up where he's left off. So Miami, I said they have a balanced offense, but I think the star of the show is going to be in the passing attack, and that might be Richards. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a fast kid, and uh, if he can catch the football, I mean, you know, he's pretty much going to go in the end zone. Um, you know, I think the short and intermediate guys are really going to do a lot to fight off that pass rush. So Herndon, the tight end, Braxton Berrios, uh, one of the slot receivers, I think, they're going to be the bigger proponent there uh, to slowing down Notre Dame. It's, you know, you have a three-step drop, you're getting a block, and, you know, three seconds, two and a half seconds is better than a five-step where it's going into four seconds and you're having to pass protect for longer. So those those intermediate guys are going to be big. You hit them a few times. Uh, you get safeties to creep up. You get linebackers trying to get a little pressure, and you open up holes for a guy like Richard. Who's one player on the Miami Hurricanes that most most of the people listening to this might not be familiar with that 
could play a big factor in this game and could end up being someone we're familiar with very quickly. Christopher Herndon, the tight end, and uh, Sheldrick Redwine, the safety, are going to be two guys that will have a big impact. Any predictions for the game? I'd say uh, Miami by one. All right, Justin Dottavio of the Ironman football blog. You write about football coaching. You write about football from the coach's perspective. You also contribute to Fansided and SB Nation, and your contributions to One Foot Down. We'll have that linked in the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Any final thoughts on Notre Dame versus Miami? Hey, show up early and get you some good Cuban food, Cuban coffee, and enjoy the tailgate. And how can people find you on social media? IMFB underscore BLOG on Twitter. All right, Justin, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Let's go to final thoughts and social media and begin with uh, start from left to right, uh, Tim William. I I think that the Patriot way for all these years of everyone is expendable. I thought it was eventually going to fall on Tom Brady, that eventually they were going to take that discerning eye and look and see a quarterback in his 40s and say, you know, we appreciate the TB12 regimen and all this other stuff, but it's hard to believe he's going to be a MVP candidate at age 45. And if the Patriots, maybe they don't see it in Garoppolo at the end of the day, or maybe they really think Tom Brady has a lot left in him but I'll, I wanted to take the contrarian view on John Lynch calling and knocking or kicking the tires on a Tom Brady trade. Of course, he's from the Bay Area, so that would make a lot of fans happy. I don't think it had any chance of happening, but it was interesting to hear that a team did at least check in on that and test the Patriots on, all right, well, if that's the Patriot way, are you really going to go forward with a quarterback entering his 40s for the long term? You can follow me on Twitter at Tim Wright Sports and on Instagram at Tim Wrights Sports. Mr. Henderson. Well, you can find me on uh, Twitter at J Henderson Tampa. And um, my final thought will be brief. And uh, okay. it's here we are halfway through the season. And the only NFL team worth watching in the state of Florida is the Jacksonville Jaguars. And who would have ever figured that? So, you know, they, their defense is outstanding. They, they thoroughly throttled my Cincinnati Bengals last week. And, um, you know, they, they appear to have the, in Tom Coughlin, the right guy in the front office, they built just a, a, uh, a very strong defense and uh, Blake Bortles is playing within himself at this point. Um, you got to like their chances going forward. And uh, what, what are the odds uh, that we'd be saying that uh, when the season started? Hey Joe, I don't want to put you on the spot, but any thoughts about the passing of Roy Halladay? Who? Well, I mean, like everybody, we are, stunned, saddened, um, all the above. Um, it's hard to say much about him that hasn't already been said, both as mm-hmm. a competitor 
and a human being. But I right. will say this. Um, I had a conversation with the uh, sheriff of Pasco County, which is just north of the Tampa Bay area, uh, Sheriff Chris Nako. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked about what a great friend Roy Halliday was to uh, law enforcement in in uh, Pasco County and how he would always show up low-key, uh, wasn't looking for fanfare. He was just trying to help. He was mm-hmm. – uh, all would always raise his hand and uh great family man that just tells you a lot about the man and uh and the legacy he leaves behind and and how much he's going to be missed absolutely eric kaufman you get to close it out my friend all right guys uh social media at i kaufman 76 um and you know everybody likes to point out that uh you know, 10 NFL teams don't have good quarterbacks and the dearth of good quarterbacks, but I'm going to flip it for a moment and talk about the next wave, and it's a beautiful wave. Uh, and I'm talking about Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, uh, Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson. Uh, you throw in Winston and Derek Carr who are still young, but, you know, didn't take the step forward this year, but I don't think anybody's given up on either. Um, that's not a bad little nucleus going forward. And uh, Wentz, you have the, uh, I believe, the uh, halfway uh, leader for the MVP award. Uh, Goff shows no signs of slowing down. It is one heck of an offense with the Rams. I can't, I can't believe what they're doing because I don't, I don't think his weapons are that great. But um, I'll tell you what, I think, um, I think the NFL is in good stead uh, at, at, the, at the quarterback position with, uh, with some of the young studs on, on the horizon. Well, that's not bad, right? I mean, anytime you've got um, those guys of that quality, that certainly speaks well for the future of the National Football League. A um, little quick um, piece of business here uh, for our buddy – Jack Helig, and that is the Bad Boy Mowers Gasparilla Bowl tickets are on sale. So if you are uh, if you want to get involved, a uh, couple of things that are important. That is the game is now going to be played on Thursday night, uh, December twenty first. It's going to be played at eight p.m. Uh, over at the, of course at the Trop. So um, a couple of changes used to be the old uh, deal used to be as you remember used to be a um, Saturday afternoon game used to be the day before Christmas. Now it is uh, going to be on the 21st of December at 8 p.m. in prime time. And, uh, you know, a lot of fun opportunities there. There's going to be a lot of hospitality stuff going on, the shipwreck party deck seats and the crow's nest and all that fun stuff is going to be available. So shout out to Jack and thanks for sending us over that information. And I know a lot of people are going to want to get involved with that bowl and who knows could very well be a, a bowl with one of the two uh, uh, teams from the central Florida location playing in that bowl. So we'll find that out soon enough. That's our show for this week. Thanks again to Justin Dottavio of Iron Man Football Blog and Pete Byrne of WSBT Television in South Bend. You can follow the Sunshine Boys podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Blog Talk Radio.
Read Ira Kaufman's Bucks analysis at joebucksfan.com. Read my sports writing at sportstalkflorida.com. You can read Jim Williams' writing at sportstalkflorida and newstalkflorida.com. And you can read Joe Henderson at floridapolitics.com. So, for Pete Byrne, Justin Dottavio, Jim Williams, and the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman and Joe Henderson, I'm Tim Williams. Enjoy Notre Dame at Miami, everybody.